Amen. All right, First Timothy chapter one. Um, the way that I want to approach this is to take major points that Paul is making and to vet those out so it might not be necessarily all sequential verses because he doesn't necessarily make all of his points in one through five and six through 10 like that, but you'll be able to follow easy enough. And um, there's some interesting things in here. I told Troy, tonight is gonna be mildly controversial, next week is gonna be wildly controversial. So this will be great. Um, chapter one of First Timothy, um, Let's read the first couple of verses. I'm just gonna take it in pieces like this and then we're going to, like I said, we'll take major sections. I find three major points that he's making in this first chapter to Timothy. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. I like that Paul said his calling was a commandment. It wasn't an optional. Jesus strikes him off of his horse and says, who is this little guy who's persecuting me? <laughs> who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, and when you persecute my people, you're messing with me, and you don't want to do that. Um, life was changed, obviously. Uh, I like that Jesus also told Ananias to go pray for a man, go pray for Paul. They knew who he was, he had his reputation. What we're trying to do, y'all, is to, so you can see the whiteboard, so you can sit wherever you want, but if you want to see the whiteboard better, you can sit on this side. If you want to be rebellious, you can sit on that side. No, it's a, uh, uh, that's all good, okay. <laughs> Either way. Um, so, Jesus says to Ananias, go pray for him, he's praying, Pray for him that he may be healed and that he may be filled with the Holy Spirit for I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name. Who wants that calling? Paul suffered. He was anointed. He had powerful ministry but read the list of the things that happened in his ministry in 2 Corinthians, especially chapter 11. It's pretty frightening and you'd have to think really long and hard if you were gonna make the deal but that's why he said, it was his commandment. It wasn't optional. He didn't say, Paul, I have a deal for you. No, he said, boom, you're gonna do what I tell you to do because I am the Lord. So Paul got that. Um, that was great. So First Timothy, obviously Timothy is, he calls him his son. Um, in the next verse, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Timothy was not just a disciple, but he was mentored by Paul called him his spiritual son. This is the only place that I see in the New Testament where that language of spiritual sonship and fathering is actually used. Um, I think it's valid. I think sometimes in today's world with the fatherlessness, my observation has been that it's, it's overused and that people feel like if they don't have a quote spiritual father, then they're not going to be able to mature to their full stature and I will categorically tell you that's false. If the Lord has one for you, and if the Lord has them for you, and I think that there's lots of fathers around. There's fathers here, there's fathers there, and, and we can all speak into that. But what tends to happen, and I'll just throw this out there, I don't know why I got on this ramble, I'm already getting into trouble. Um, what can happen, and I've seen this a lot, is that it becomes a codependent relationship, and it's unhealthy. Um, 
when I first got saved, I was as dumb as a box of rocks. I knew absolutely nothing. I had never been to church. I heard the gospel one time. That's when I was saved. He took me out in the back, baptized me in the swimming pool, and I was on my own. I didn't know anything. And the first time I went to church was a year and a half pretty much after that. I was just wandering in, um, in the woods and crying out to God. And I went to that church, and when I got, that's where I met my wife, the first time I walked in, she was on the stage, and um, she was singing a worship song, and I was instantly smitten, and I haven't gotten over it yet, so. Uh, and don't plan to. But you don't need to raise your hand on that. Um, so I asked, I literally asked three leaders in that church, three. And I didn't ask the pastor, because I knew he was too busy. I asked three leaders in that church, will you please mentor me? Help me to know what it means to be a real Christian. And all three of them said no. That's a real thing. And so I've scratched my head over the years and wondered, well maybe the Lord was protecting me. (laughs) Because he didn't want me to get messed up. Or he didn't want me to, I don't know. But God is able to do what only God can do anyway. So. Don't, don't have a, a crippled mindset because you, you think you haven't had this amazing spiritual father that has mentored you and all. Um, I'll just say, as elders, we're always a yes. It might be a yes in two months, but it's always a yes, and um, we will help you. Son, right. Yeah, okay, there you go. Acknowledged. You, okay, you got me. Okay. Um, verses three through seven. Here's the first major point that Paul's trying to impress upon Timothy, his protege. This is, this is the beginning of this emphasis. This is verse three. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So he's gonna have an emphasis in this, just like he does in 2 Timothy, preach the word. You know that passage in chapter four of 2 Timothy is so powerful, but this is a huge deal for Paul. The church cannot be healthy if the word of God that goes forth is not going forth in a pure way and is not going forth in an honest way that actually represents the truth of God. That is absolutely essential. There have always been false teachers from the beginning of the church. There will always be false teachers out there. Um, Healthy teaching is a huge point for Paul in this chapter, and we'll see multiple references to it um, as as we go on. And you can look at the language here. I'll read down verses uh, four through seven and just listen to what he's saying nor paying attention, so strange doctrines, verse three, nor paying attention to myths, endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the purposes or the work of God, which is by faith. So speculation is a a huge thing. There is something in the human psyche that loves to have knowledge that nobody else has. I understand all about the end times. I've listened to some of this stuff over and over. I'm not trying to be snarky, but I'm like, you're making that point from that scripture? No. That's not what that says. But there's speculation. Well, maybe this happened and maybe that. Speculate. What is speculation? Speculation is a theory that you have no evidence for. 
Paul said, don't do it. That's not how we preach the word. There's gotta be something solid that actually sticks to our lives if it's sound teaching. So verse four, myths, endless genealogies, speculation rather than furthering the administration or the plans or working of God. Verse five, but I'm gonna skip and I'm gonna come back to it. Verse six, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. A lot of that. All you gotta do is go to social media. Um, Verse seven to me is social media. Wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. I read that all the time. Sometimes I read stuff and I go, uh, wow. Very confident in your ignorance you are. There's a lot of that. And so we live in perilous times for that reason. For folks who get their theology from social media, it's, it's very perilous. Um, we need to get it from God's word. So it's a big deal. Healthy teaching um, is, is a huge emphasis in this first chapter. So I want you to tell me what some characteristics of sound doctrine are because Paul uses that phrase at least five times in his writings. Yes. I'm sorry. I haven't, I haven't done my job. Yeah, you can write sound, sound okay. teaching or sound doctrine and then we're gonna, we're gonna put characteristics of it and then I wanna read what Paul said it is. Yes, ma'am. It points you back to Jesus? Okay. 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 Yeah, can't argue with that point. Good. What else, Tim? Okay. The resurrection is real. Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. He, Jesus came in the flesh. Okay. I'm glad you all are putting all these doctrinal things out there. So good. Yes, ma'am. Okay. He died for our sins. Okay. It's okay, you don't have to. Those all have to do with Jesus and his, his work, right? The person and work of Jesus, okay. For sure, that's sound. What, what do you think that Paul, when he's instructing Timothy, gives us sound doctrine? I will just give you a little hint. All those are true, what you said, but he mentioned none of those. Selah. So, so what is sound doctrine? I wanna read the chapter where Paul describes what sound doctrine is to you. It's Titus chapter two. This is where he says this is sound doctrine. And this isn't how we think of sound doctrine. We think of it just like what you guys just put out there, the, the truth of the person, the work of Christ, the Trinity, things like that, which are absolutely essential. I'm not saying that. I just think it's interesting that Paul instructs Timothy four or five times in those letters to teach sound doctrine, and he doesn't go in the systematic theology way of what those points of doctrine are. There are other books in the New Testament that do. John says if anyone comes and says um, Jesus was not here in the flesh, he's false, reject all that, We, we get that. I just find it interesting, Timothy teach sound doctrine. Here it is, Titus chapter two. But as for you, Speak the things which are fitting for sound 
doctrine. First one. Here's what it is, drum roll. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in the faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and love their children. To be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. We're getting more controversial. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us there you go to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. So what is the essence of sound doctrine? Yeah, Sound doctrine is this. It causes people to live in a Christ-like way. Yeah, we're different from the world, but sound doctrine is living faithful in the mundane things of life. Your marriage, your parenting, your job, even if you're a slave, don't steal. Do your work heartily. This is what adorns, Paul says, the gospel of God is our life that actually represents that we're godly in Christ-like people. Not that we know all of the systematic theology, but that we actually live a life in the mundane things that represent him well. It's huge. So our marriages matter. Our family matters. The way we work matters. Paul said that's sound doctrine. Teaching that conforms us to the image of Christ and rightly represents and honors him so that when people look at our life, they go, that's a Christian. That's a Christian. Look, look Look how they work. The boss is talking to the assistant manager. He goes, you see that guy? He's working even when nobody's watching him. You see, when he doesn't have anything to do, he's getting the broom out. He's trying to sweep. That's a real thing. That's adorning the gospel of God and it's bringing honor to Jesus because people are living faithful in the mundane. I'm convinced of this. We have these high views of what discipleship is and what it's gonna be and all of the rigors of it and we're gonna go. But discipleship is primarily worked out in the mundane things of everyday life. That's where it's actually worked out. Do you, do you have a prayer life? Do, do you lead your family, Dad? I mean, all of these things are part of what it means to preach sound doctrine. It's not shouting, but I find that to be amazing. 
that that's what he goes after because the issue is, are our lives rightly representing who Jesus is? And that is shown mostly in the mundane things. I can tell you that I had a business for 34 years and I got a large percentage of my jobs just because I showed up for the appointment on time. I can't believe this. You actually came when you said you were gonna come. It's real. And then they knew that created confidence where they knew they could trust what I told them that I was gonna do. I know it's not shouting. It's real though. This is sound doctrine. So let me ask you, what makes a false teacher? Give me characteristics of a false teacher other than teaching falsely, okay? Um, yes, sir. Okay, okay, he's saying there's an intent to deceive. I'm not sure that's 100% right. I think, here's the thing. When, what person, how many people do you know that are deceived that know they're deceived? By definition, if you're deceived, you don't know it, right? Right, there might be an intent. I mean, there's hucksters out there, but, but it might not be, yeah, they, they, they may not know it. They may think that they're, they're teaching the right thing. There's certain characteristics that Scripture gives of false teachers that I find amazing in wolves. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. They're, they're living an ungodly and unholy life. Fleshly indulgence, right? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Good. Yes. 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 That's so important. So let me read that. Very, very good. Um, insight there this is big Paul gives in, in Acts chapter 20 he's talking to the elders at Ephesus right he calls them together and he um, has this emotional tearful goodbye with them you're never going to see my face again that, that kind of thing so down in verse 28 of Acts 20 it says this be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And just, if you, if you look at that verse, this defines what an elder is, an overseer, and a shepherd, and they're all the same person. You can just find it all in that one verse. Here's what he says. Paul called the elders to himself, and then he says to the elders, be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock. Who's on guard for the flock? Shepherds, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So here's, here's how it works, and you can see the exact same thing in 1 Peter 5 if you want to go there. Elders were the leaders of the early church. There was always multiple elders in every church. Acts 14, 23 says that when they evangelized in a city, they set elders, plural, in every church, singular. That's what it says. 
And then when you read other parts of scripture like this one, especially in 1 Peter 5, it explains that elders are the shepherds and they are the overseers. Why three names? Because elder speaks of the maturity of the man. Shepherding speaks of caring for the flock and feeding them. Overseeing speaks of the administration of the church. That's function. Shepherding is function. Overseeing is function. The person is elder speaking of the Hopefully, they're spiritually mature to have that oversight. So, that's an interesting verse there. So, going on, that wasn't my main point, but it was right there, so I had to say it. I know that after my departure, Paul says to the elders, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, imagine how daunting that is. He's got these elders gathered around. Some of you are going to... That's like Jesus saying at the table, one of you is gonna betray me, and they're all like, hmm. From among your own selves, though, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, this is verse 29 of Acts 20, verse 30. And from among your own selves, men will arise, I'm sorry, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Here's the two characteristics of a wolf or a false teacher. They speak perverse things, meaning they they teach falsely, perverse means crooked or twisted, in order, there's a purpose behind that. So it's gotta always be the newest thing, it's gotta be the most exciting, it's got to be the revelation of this or that in heaven, it's got to be the revelation that the angel whoever gave to me that nobody's ever heard before, this is just new, it's amazing, and that's what you hear. It not only sells, it draws people to themselves, and there's an ambition in the heart That if it's not purged out in ministry, it becomes toxic to the body of Christ. They're gathering people to themselves because it becomes about them. And they'll teach or do whatever they need to do in order to keep that thing going because you always have to have something more exciting, right? Something new. God forbid we would teach sound doctrine. Take care of your children. Honor your employer. That's not exciting. That doesn't sell. It pleases God. What, what, are we, what are we after? And those characteristics, um, I see them quite a bit. And I pray, God, keep my heart pure from that. One, one thing that the Lord did for me personally is that he gave me a business that beat me to death for 34 years. And even though I knew that I was called, and during that time, he ground the ambition for ministry into powder in me, and it was a blessing. And at the end of that season, before Heart of the Father started in 2010, I told Diane, I said, well, in my heart, I'm free from ambition for ministry. The thing that scares me now is that I don't care, and I don't want to stand before Jesus and him go, what did you do with the talent I gave you? That scares me now instead of the other way around. So that's actually a good thing. I, I, honestly, I'll, this is not self-congratulating at all, but the elders that you have here, we're not ambitious for ministry. We're not doing it for money or for a following. We're trying to honor the Lord Jesus. That's really true. That's our heart. Um, so you should thank God for that. Uh, we're not trying to do anything else other than that. Um, so, False teacher, here's here's a statement I want to read. False doctrine 
is just as much a product of heart issues as it is of understanding issues. Absolutely. Sound teaching is a huge deal. Healthy, produ- healthy teaching produces Christ-like character, faithfulness in the mundane. All right, let's go back up to verse five of First Timothy chapter one. And we'll look at that again. But the goal of our instruction, so why are we doing this? See, Paul is trying to shape and mentor Timothy's heart with core values that are gonna control his life from that point on. You, you gotta get this. You're, you're not, this is not about you being recognized. This is not about you being the flashy preacher. This is, this is about you being faithful as a steward. Paul said, for those who are called, it's, it's a matter of absolute es- essentiality that they be found faithful. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, a steward must be found faithful. And he said, we're stewards. Here's another thing that I find, and I laugh a lot when I read the Bible uh, in light of current things. In charismatic movements, we're, we're crazy. We're crazy on some things. I know you don't like that, but it's true. The whole thing about the apostle, I, I agree with uh, Rick Joyner where he said, if you go into any conference and you throw a rock out in the audience, you're liable to hit three apostles. Um, <laughs> I think there's truth in that. It's overdone. Do I believe apostles exist? Absolutely. Do I believe there's many as say they exist? No. No. They don't. So, apostles are those who, I, I wonder, where, where is this, that, like Paul says, we not only were pleased to give you the gospel, but also to pour out our own lives as well. And he said, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus and ourselves as your slave. I'm like, where is that, apostles? You're preaching only Christ Jesus, not yourself, and you're preaching yourself as the slave of the people of God. You're laying down your life. We were pleased not only to impart you the gospel, but also our own lives, our very lives. Can you tell I don't like the spectator and <laughs> idol culture that has gone in the church? It's ungodly. And it doesn't rightly represent Jesus. When people are bigger, when ministers are bigger than Jesus, we know we're in trouble. When people flock because of a personality, there's something wrong with that. So it's only mildly controversial tonight, so next week, be wildly. So let's look at verse five again. The goal of our instruction is love. Notice these three qualities. From a pure heart, if you wanna, you wanna write those down. This, this, this is the thing that's supposed, these are supposed to be the heart motives that motivate all ministry. The goal of our instruction is love. That means we're doing it to build up and to bless somebody else, not to build a mailing list or a ministry. I'm sorry if this sounds snarky, but this is real. It's so different than the Bible portrays ministry. And Paul's calling for sure, he would never recognize it, all the things that he suffered. Um, 
throughout his ministry. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. That's the second thing. From a good conscience and from a sincere faith. That's the kind of heart that brings forth healthy teaching and is healthy in leadership. What's a pure heart? Somebody tell me what a pure heart would be in ministry. What, what, what would the characteristic of that be? Okay, motive to exalt the Lord. I like that. Yeah, I need my ears to. <laughs> oh, hear others, okay. Yeah, good. Yes. Okay, yep. That'd probably be under the love category, right? The motivation is love. Yeah, I think, I think a pure heart is, is, a, is about motives. And I think it's about doing what God wants to be done and building up his people. And it's, here's, here's the kicker to me. It's not about me. This is not about me. This is not because I need to be recognized. It's not because I need to have the affirmation of people. It's not because I need to have their money. It's because I'm doing this because the Lord has called me. And like Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel, but there's a pure motivation that is actually doing it for pure reasons, which is not about me. It's about God and it's about the people, just like those other verses that I quoted. I think that's a pure heart, a good conscience. What's a good conscience? Okay, this is the pure motives. Okay, well, what does it speak about our conscience being pure? What what does it what what does that indicate about the individual? They're not sinning, right? They're not living in an open, compromised life, right? They're not. They're they're not. They don't have skeletons in the closet. Hopefully, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. But I think we're talking about transparency and genuineness where what you see is what you get. You see the life. I, I believe it's right to have community where people see your life and see what you actually are. You know, just like our kids. So many kids are lost in ministry. Anybody who's been in it a long time and seen it, you, you can testify to this. Kids get lost in ministry because their parent, they f- believe that their parents are hypocrites because they're one way at the church and at the assembly, glory, and then at home, they're like, shut up, you know, or they're just fleshly, and the kids see that. Here's the thing about parenting. Your kids know exactly who you are. You do not fool them. They see you when you get out of bed with bed head and your head's matted down like that, and then when you get in your coffee and you're stumbling around, they see what you do and what you say. They see you when you curse under your breath. They see everything. And when they see that, and they hear the grandiose declarations from the pulpit, they go, those don't match. That's, that's not okay. And so th- this is really important to have a pure or a clear conscience, a good conscience. How, how do we do that? How, how would you say that we, do, we keep a clear conscience? Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. Hebrews. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Good. Sam. I think um, that you have to have uh, personally, and I think having it corporately in the body, and then start accountability relationships with a strong foundation of having faith built up that you really believe in the forgiveness and the mercy of God. Okay. Right. And, um, and, and how would you even believe anything you're free? Right. And so I think having a foundation of that is, is super important. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. We struggle entering into things because we, we feel like we're a hypocrite. We feel right. like there's things going on. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready or if I'm there. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. Right. So I think having that foundation is super important. Right. Okay. Okay, good. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this, these verses out of 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I think that what we're talking about is walking in the light. That's how I would describe it. We're walking in the light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I, I love John's frankness. <laughs> he says, if you say that, you're a stinking liar. Um, doesn't preach good that way, but it reads good that way. Um, First John 1, 6, and 7. But if we walk in the light, this is verse 7, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what does walking in the light mean? Does it, walking, does it mean walking in perfect, sinless perfection? Or does it mean we're, we're doing our best to walk before the Lord honorably, but when we do sin, like Tim said, we're quick to repent, we're quick to get forgiveness, we're quick to get restoration. Skeletons in the closet don't go along with keeping a good conscience. And things that are buried, hello everywhere today, church world, skeletons in the closet that come out, the Lord makes sure that your skeletons will come out of the closet. He will make sure because he's jealous for his church. And I believe this, that if you, have, if you have ministry that you're consistently receiving from a minister and there is impurity or defilement inside of them, it's like a mother breastfeeding her child who's eating too much broccoli and it will, even though the child doesn't know what she's been eating, it will affect the child. I believe that, that it comes out, it comes through. And so you don't want... Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about authenticity and transparency and diligence and actually walking in a, a holy and righteous way before the Lord. That's part of a good conscience. Paul said in Acts 24, he said it in more than this, just this place, but he said it of himself in Acts 24, 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. It's walking in the light. And in 1 Timothy 1, where we are, down in verse 19, he says, 
keeping faith and a good conscience, again, which some having rejected suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. I've been around this long enough to where I've seen a lot of people shipwreck. I've seen people that were so zealous for God and evangelizing and doing everything that you can imagine and they would have jumped off the Empire State Building for Jesus. But then from compromise, from hidden things, from not actually dealing with things that were in their life, in their flesh, rooted in their life, they got into a completely compromised state and went back into the world. And it it brings shame and disgrace upon the name of Jesus. That's why it's awful. That's the... But it also, how, how do you feel? How did you feel when you heard about Mike Bickle? How did you feel when you heard about Mike Bickle for the first time? IHOP, KC. All this, okay, you don't know. Big, big scandal that's out there. I, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus, but how did you feel? When I, when I heard that, a friend called me up and gave it to me on a Saturday night. I said, dude... He said, man, what, what do you think about that? I said, I, I want to vomit. I feel sick. I want to vomit. This is going to bring great disgrace and dishonor upon the name of Jesus, and it makes me sick. Yeah. I'm, I'm not throwing anybody to the bus or saying perfection, perfection is my middle name. I'm just saying we have to be, we, we're not just carrying our name. We carry the name of Jesus, and if we represent him in leadership, we have to, if, if we need to step down, we should step down. That's one thing I love, honestly. And, you know, I'm not trying to stroke us or myself, but I love having a plurality of elders because we actually get up in each other's business. And I tell them, I say, you can have my phone. You can have any of my devices. You just ask for them. You scroll through everything. You can see everything that I do. Transparency has to be the rule if you're going to have real accountability. And here's is what I say. You know, everybody says they have accountability, right? Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't have any accountability? Have you ever heard a leader say, I don't have any accountability? Of course not. They say they have accountability, but here's the thing. There is no accountability if there's not somebody in the room that can tell you to sit down and shut up. There needs to be that person. You say, you've got your wife. (laughs) Um, That's a real thing, though. That's the beauty and part of the power, and to me, that's part of the safety of plurality, is that you're not a one-man show, and you're not indispensable. You can be sat down. So if I did some boneheaded thing, you can believe that Dave and Brandon would sit me down, and there'd be a conversation that would be super awkward in front of this congregation, going, this guy acted like a donkey. And he's got to have to sit down during this period of restoration. And there'd be lots of tears and there would be lots of brokenness. But the church would not crash and burn. I would get restored. And I would have a chance to repent and get healed. But the church and the, the people in it, how many times I've seen this ministries that are incredibly powerful, crazy spiritual gifts and so many followers, and when that person goes down, they take down thousands of people with them to the bottom. And it grieves the heart of Jesus. He doesn't want that. 
part of the reason that we have our fails in our church system is because we don't have structures in place that actually protect. It's actually protection for somebody that's insanely gifted to not have the authority to write the check or to do everything themselves. That's, it protects them from the head game. This is Luke chapter 12. Jesus is talking to his disciples. There's this massive crowd out there, thousands of people. The Bible actually used the word myriads, the same as it does of angels in heaven. There's, it's like a European soccer match in the finals. There are people everywhere, and the disciples are up there on the stage with Jesus. And Jesus said, come here, come here. Listen, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Because this crowd out there, it will mess your head up. When you look out there and they're like, ah! He said it will mess with your head and it will corrupt you and twist you in a heartbeat. Don't let that hypocrisy, then you begin to act for the crowd. You begin to act because of the adoring crowd and to get their affirmation. He goes, that will mess you up and it will mess up my kingdom. Beware. I find that amazing. The people are trampling. There's so many people there. Jesus was the most secure person who ever lived. When he had the big crowds, his first thought was, oh, we better, we better weed them out. There's a bunch of tares out there. We're going to have to weed them out. If you're going to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You don't say that in a, in a synagogue. You, you, don't, you don't talk about cannibalism to Jewish people. That's a, that's a bad mistake. And everybody left. And the disciples are sitting there like they just came out of a house that blew up with charcoal all over their face. <laughs> what just happened? You, you, you're never gonna be the president now. And Jesus is like, do you wanna leave too? Another time, the disciples said to him, Lord, don't you know that what you said offended the Pharisees? He's like, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant is gonna be uprooted anyway. If this uproots them, then you'd be uprooted. That's the most secure person ever lived. Ministers don't talk that way. But that's a heart that is pure, and Jesus' focus was on one smiley face only, the Father's. And Father, if I'm saying what you told me to say, we're good. They can all depart, because only those that you add to me are gonna come anyway. I don't have to worry about this, it's not my thing. My thing is to obey you. I read the Gospel of John one time really carefully, verse by verse, like I do. I just have it wired this way. I don't know why. Or I count words. But I counted the red letters in the Gospel of John where Jesus said something. And I found an amazing thing. One out of every 10 of the words that Jesus said in the Gospel of John were sent from the Father, on a mission from the Father. Something that had the idea that he was doing the Father's will. He was sent by the Father. His whole focus, imagine that. 10% of what you say is about, God sent me. 
This is what I'm here. I'm all about just doing what he said. I just want to please him. Father, I thank you that you hear me, right? He's praying before Lazarus, who's been in the tomb for four days. He stinketh, Lord. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. They can't say that some magical thing happened and he just swooned. He stinks. Father, I thank you that you hear me, and I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying it for the sake of these around that they'll believe. His whole focus was, what does God want? What does my Father want, and how can I give it to him? So refreshing and so powerful. I love Jesus. I love the things that he does. I love the way that he blows minds. It still blows my mind when I read stuff in the gospel. I'm just like, what in the world? You would never be a church growth guru today. That's not how you do it. We have to have the attractional model. Attraction to what? To what? Y'all like this or you don't? (laughs) Is it okay if I just share my heart? This, this, is, this is important and powerful stuff. Avoid the shipwreck. Keep a clear conscience. This is probably the most famous quote from one of the most famous quotes from church history from Martin Luther when he stands. He's called on the carpet for the books that he's written, and he was a pretty rough guy. Martin Luther was not super refined. He was brilliant. But it's probably not a good idea on that day to call the Pope a pig and to call him the Antichrist. Probably not a good idea. Um, but, but he did it. And um, they called him to come before the, the tribunal and they had all of his books and pamphlets laid out on a table and they said to him, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And Luther, the first time, he asked for more time. He, was ter- he said he was terrified. He was trembling and shaking because he knew they could kill him. They wanted to kill him. So he said, give me some more time to think. And so they put him back in the cell. The next day, they brought him out again. Ask him the question, do you or do you not rec- recant and repudiate the things that you've written? And this is what Luther famously said with trembling in his own words he said he was terrified unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other my conscience is captive to the word of God so good I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe here I stand I cannot do otherwise God help me. (laughs) That's pretty brave. I like it. All right. Let's look at a couple other things. How's everybody doing? Okay. Verse 7 through 10. This Paul's talking about the law. Verse 7, he's talking about these um, teachers who have gotten off the rails. He said they're wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. 
I'm, Diane and I are, can write a book on parenting called Courageous Parenting. And th there's a movement out there, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called Gentle Parenting, which means that you don't ever spank your children. Um, you don't use the rod. That's all metaphorical and all of that. And I've read a lot of the posts, and the book's not going to be snarky. It's not going to be like that. I'm not going to attack. But, but I want to put out there, <coughs> there's so much misinformation out there. They're putting it out there like, this is a totally new idea to ever use the rod with your kids. Like, that's, that's abusive, and there's this hypersensitivity to that. We get that there's been abuse, right? We, no, nobody condones that. But they're, they're twisting the scriptures. They're saying the Hebrew word for discipline, Musar, doesn't ever mean physical discipline. It only means words. And, all, and it's just, it's, it's this verse. They make these confident assertions. I've seen it over and over again where somebody will write or, or respond to their blog about, well, my pastor says so-and-so, and they'll say, well, your pastor's wrong. He's just a man, and he's wrong because this is what it means. And honestly, y'all, they're absolutely clueless. They don't know a thing about Hebrew. They don't know a thing about what experts in the language say about it. They're just making it up because that's what they want. This is what happens. This is what Paul said to Timothy. Preach the word. In season, out of season. There is an out of season for preaching the word where everybody does go, oh, it's so good. They go, what the heck was that? Be instant in season out. Be ready. Keep it up. Persevere. Because the days are going to come when people will not endure sound teaching. Do you know that sound teaching sometimes has to be endured? Because it hurts. Ow! That was sound. <laughs> and so they heap to themselves teachers who will say what they want them to say in accord, this is the key phrase to that whole passage, in accordance with their own desires. Tell me what I want to hear. Oh, heck yeah, I'll write a book. Will you sell a thousand copies of it for me? I'll spread it around. It's not true, but if that's what you want to hear, I'll tell you that. Hello, Amazon. Number one selling book in the charismatic category when I was teaching here at Maranatha was called Water Spirits. And Sea Demons or something like that. Absolutely ridiculous. It was the number one bestseller on Amazon. One of the chapter titles was Sneaky Squid Spirits. I'm not kidding. Why is that? Because like in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts, they did nothing other than saying or hearing something new. That's gotta be new. This amazing revelation, really? Where did it come from? Because I, I don't find anything about water demons and sneaky squid spirits in here, but there's a whole explanation of how this stuff works. It's ridiculous. One of the things in the book that I found amazingly humorous, this is why there's so much illicit sex at 
spring break at Beach Weekends because there's water right there. And those water demons come up. And all the kids are gathered. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. This is taught as Bible truth and revelation. And it's absolute hogwash. The scriptures that were given to support it, there are little notes at the bottom. I would have the students, I go, okay, read that scripture. Something totally unrelated. Does that support the point? It doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, who cares? As long as you've got a scripture reference down there, then everybody believes that's going to be biblical. Listen, oh, no. No, that's not me. I'm not your guy for that. No. Heaping to themselves teachers according to their own desires. You can find whatever you want on YouTube. You can find a preacher to tell you whatever you want. I've had a woman tell me before in doing marital counseling that she was going to divorce her husband because of abuse. I said, well, well, what's the abuse? Well, he comes home cranky from work. He comes home cranky from work. I said, is that what you're going to tell Jesus when you stand before him? I divorced my husband and left my children because my husband came home cranky from work, and I call that abuse. I said, here's the problem with using abuse as the reason. I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing abuse. Y'all, hear me. I know there's some awful stuff out there. Trust me, I've heard a lot. Here's the problem. Who gets to define it? Jesus gave the reasons for divorce and remarriage. And it was really clear. But we add on to it. And she told me, well, here's these two Christian psychologists on YouTube that are saying it. I said, again, I I tell people in counseling, I'm the guy who only sings one note. We're, we're going to give account for this. Jesus said that at the last day, there is one who judges you, and it is the words which I have spoken. That's what we're going to have to give account for. So I'm like, I ask the question again. Is that what you're going to tell Jesus when you stand before him? Because, you know, I've, I've been around this thing long enough to know that the reality is that people usually are just going to do what they want anyway. But my job is to try to be breaks and to try to say, are you sure? Because that's not what my Bible says. And there's going to be repercussions for this. And self-will, it's the self-will of the naive that destroy them, Proverbs 1 says. Self-will is deadly. Um, Wow. That was free of charge. (laughs) You may want me to pay you for that one. Um, So let's talk about the the law for a minute here that Paul refers to. They want to become teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good, verse eight, if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, 
and liars, perjurers, or whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So who was the law for? And what is the purpose of the law? So, so let's write law, purpose of the law, and have a one, two, three there, and I want you all to tell me what the purpose, the New Testament explanation of what the purpose of the law is in the life of people. Yes? Okay. All right. Yep. So, so the law is a revealer. So all of these, I think, these points will start out reveals. The, the purpose of the law is that it reveals... And Sam, you, the first thing that you said it reveals is? The inability to sin. Okay, so, so let me back it up. You, you're, you're right on that one. Well, let me start at the beginning. The law reveals God's standards and requirements. Would you agree with that? Yes. It, it, it reveals what he requires of people to do. Secondly, it reveals our weakness and failure and our inability to do it, Right? And thirdly, yeah, our, our weakness would be number two, baby. Number one is the, the standards. <clears throat> thirdly, it reveals our desperate need for Jesus and the Holy Spirit because we can't live it without him. But the law is not designed for the believer to use as a means of having a right relationship with God. It doesn't work. How many tried that? Early in my Christian life, again, I was dumb as a box of rocks. I got excited about prayer. And so I went to the library and I got these books by John R. Rice. Uh, you probably know that name. Um, uh, other, uh, Oswald um, Sanders um, on prayer. And I'm reading them and I'm getting all fired up. And I make this vow. I'm going to pray for two hours every day. I told all my friends, I'm going to pray for two hours every day. I'm a high school kid, fresh off of drugs. I'm going to pray for two hours a day. And if I could have heard the voice from heaven, it would have been something like this. <laughs> I don't think so. <clears throat> so that lasted about half of one day when I got up to an hour and I played out. Our willpower is not that strong, is it? Think about the disciples. Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross and they're going to crucify me. The chief priests are going to kill me and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And Peter goes, never, Lord. We'll come in and fight with you. We'll, we'll stand with you. That's never going to happen. We'll never. He goes, you're all going to forsake me. Never will we forsake you. I'll die with you. And the Bible says, and they all said the same thing. And then when Jesus is being taken away from the garden before he gets on the cross now. They all did what? Yeah. These are, that's, that, that is a perfect picture of how strong your willpower is to live for God. How many believe they were sincere? These guys left everything. They really did. They, left, they were as sincere as can be, but sincerity and self-will do not equal holiness. We need a new heart first. We need the cleansing of sprinkling water. We need for God to give us a heart where he says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. Your old heart sucks. 
but I'm going to give you a new heart where I write my commands on it. They're going to be stamped on your heart, and you're going to want to do what I want you to do. That's like tilting the pinball machine. And I'm, he says this, and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. <laughs> That's so powerful. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. And I'm like, yes! I need that. Because I'm not strong enough. My willpower is not able enough. I can't take these standards and go, I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray for two hours a day. I'm going to witness five times a week. I'm going to... No. Y'all, who's had a fail with me on that? Come on. The rest of you are lying like a dog. You have. Here's the beauty and the power of the new birth. Here's the beauty and the power of being baptized in the Holy Spirit where he clothes us with his supernatural ability to do what he wants us to do. That's what we need. So the law is meant to be a revealer and to get us to Jesus. Paul said it like this in Galatians 3:24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law is a tutor. It's not the power. All right, we got a few minutes left. Y'all holding out good? All right, let's 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 ask another question here. Let's read verses 9 through 10 and then 13 to 16. I want to ask you a question. 9 and 10 say, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, okay? We just read those verses, so I'm gonna skip down to verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. The word perfect there in other translations is his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That makes me super happy because I think back of my life and how much I provoked the Lord <clears throat> and he overlooked it and he drew me to himself anyway. It's crazy. So here, here's my question. I want to ask this. Are Christians still sinners? Is it right to say that Christians are still sinners? Who says yes? <clears throat> All right, who says no? Who won't vote no matter what? Even if I give you $25, you won't raise your hand. Okay. So I, <clears throat> I believe that the teaching in the New Testament, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that, is that Christians are not still sinners because you, you have to define sinners. If you define sinner as do you ever commit a sin, well, but that's not how the Bible defines sinner. Paul picked up the Old Testament definition of what sinner is, which is this. Let me read it to you. And in the Gospels, it, it's, it's mirrored as well. Here, this is out of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Very good reference. In the Old Testament, generally, a sinner is one who despises God's will as expressed in the Torah, the law, in contrast to the righteous who submit themselves to the law of God. 
In the Gospels, the term is most often used to denote someone who does not keep the commandments of the Torah. This includes those who live flagrantly immoral lives like harlots, tax collectors, etc. The New Testament epistle letters most often use the term sinners to refer to the whole human race in a state of separation from God because of sin to all human beings as they are without Christ. I believe that's very accurate, and I believe Paul already reflected that in this passage on verse 9 when he says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless, rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers, mothers, and murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. Who wants to be in that bucket? Sinners in that bucket. Is that you? He's clearly referring to past life, right? So look at all the past tenses that when Paul's talking about, I've heard this so, so much in my life, it's just, it's just not true reading the passage, that Paul's saying that he's the greatest sinner of all. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, this is the end of his life. The Apostle Paul said, I'm the greatest sinner of all. Now? Is that what he's saying? Really, you, you sin more than anybody else, but you're the great apostle and you're just about at the end of your journey? No. Look at all the past tense. He's giving his testimony, is he not? Yeah. And he's going, I'm the example of the greatest sinner that ever lived because I persecuted the church, I killed the believers. There wasn't anybody worse than me. Jesus, when he knocked me off the horse, said, why are you persecuting me? I take this personally. Dude, you better watch out. I will hurt you if you hurt my people. And he's saying, I received mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. But let's just look at it real quickly. Verse 13, even though I was formerly, past, present, or future, past. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy, past, present, or future? Past. Because I acted ignorantly and unbelief, past, present, or future? Past. It's all past. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. And he qualifies that in the next verse. What, foremost what? and its foremost example. Yet for this reason I found mercy, past, present, or future, past. I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe him for eternal life. Paul's saying, he's not saying I'm the greatest sinner or my sins from the past haven't been forgiven. He's saying I'm the greatest example. Dude, if I can get saved, anybody can get saved. Any pimp can get saved. Anybody, you don't say you're too bad for it because I already have that crown. And Jesus showed me mercy and he saved me. That's the point of this passage. He's not saying that he's the greatest sinner of all. Listen, God demonstrates, you know this verse, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, past, present, or future, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not still sinners. Now we're saved even though we're not perfect. Sinners are those who are in rebellion against God in the Bible. That's the definition. They're enemies of God. Romans 5 says just that. While we were enemies, we were hostile in our mind towards God. Y'all, that was me. So hostile. I marvel I don't have the testimony of Paul, but my testimony is real. I was an absolute jerk. 
And the Lord said, I'm taking you anyway. You don't even know what's going on, but watch. Boom. I was like, crazy. Thank God for his mercy.